Welcome to another episode of Season 2 of the Panjway Podcast. As always, you can find our episodes on all podcast platforms, as well as YouTube and Facebook for the video episodes. Please be sure to hit the subscribe button on your platform of choice, and if you enjoy what you hear, head on over to Apple Podcasts and leave us a nice five-star review. If you want to support the podcast financially, we've set up a few ways for you to do so this season. You can become a patron by hopping over to patreon.com slash the Panjway podcast and sign up for a small monthly donation. If you want to make a one-time donation, you can find us on Venmo at the Panjway podcast. And last but not least, we've got a small selection of merchandise in our store. So if you head over to the Panjoypodcast.com and click on the store tab, you'll see stickers and other merchandise and who knows what might come down the pipeline. So remember on all three platforms, that's the Panjway podcast. P-A-N-J-W-A-I podcast. Thank you. I mean, there's a reason that Outward Bound and Knowles and mm-hmm. people climb Everest and stuff like that have, you know, these similar connections. It's, mm-hmm. I think there's, but there is, there is a direct connection in the severity of the situation. Yeah. And because yeah. it, it's and the duration kind of too. Mm-hmm. And yeah, duration's a yeah. big one because it strips away your, your kind of um, false perceptions of selfhood and identity and all these yeah. things. And it kind of just drills down into this in- incredibly basic instinctual human experience yeah when you look across the way and somebody else is having that same experience with you then in that space there is a bond that can transcend a lot of the lacquer and layers that we build on ourselves in modern society at least Mm -hmm. in the the u.s and the west and actually a good chunk of the world but you know i could wax philosophical i was about to say i kind of want a little bit of that whiskey you're drinking (laughs) oh yeah yeah yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it was strange it took nine months for that to happen but if you just took a handful of acid you'd got 17 hours as long as it takes (laughs) and the same thing would happen i'm just letting you know i'm just saying just saying you know Uh, and that's where we'll begin (laughs) (laughs) yes indeed you can just edit that out right oh man well we, we are sitting here with doc alex burner uh, Alex was the, on our 2012 deployment, he was the platoon medic for third platoon. Um, and we're really excited to have him on here. Uh, Alex is a good friend of mine. He showed me the ropes when I arrived in Korea a couple of years ago and, uh, been a good friend. So, uh, Alex, welcome, welcome to the Panjoy podcast. And as I'm sure you've seen in previous episodes, we always like to open these things by giving you an opportunity to introduce yourself, give us a brief background on your military history, why you joined the Army, why you chose to become a medic, and kind of how you ended up at Cop Sparwangar. And give us like the, the elevator speech. Sure, no problem. Um, well, I joined in January of 2005, and previous to this, I had a job as a, a mechanic that didn't really work out well. Um, uh, there was a rough stretch where I was a little bit homeless for a, a little bit, so when I joined up they signed me up and uh they sent me off to basic training as fast as possible which is about five days wow. um jeez uh, meps i was at meps and they found out that i was red green colorblind and uh they mm. gave me two choices for jobs i could be an apache flight coordinator or i could be a medic and um which ironically 
like it was just a star MOS. They were looking for people to join the surge and those are the two MOSs they needed the most. Anyway, so I was red green, red, green color blind. I chose that, uh, I chose to be a medic and honestly, I was surprised I was smart enough. <laughs> I, just, I just don't know how bad they screwed up. They sent me to, uh, basic in Fort Leonard Wood, AIT in, uh, uh, Sam Houston. And after that was over with, uh, I got shipped to Korea. It was my first duty station. Um, after a year in Korea, my next duty station was Fort Stewart, Georgia. And I served with 164 for about seven, eight years. So you showed up to Fort Stewart in 2007? Uh, roundabouts, yeah. Okay. That's so one of the things that always stood out to me about 164 and like two IDs. Like people stayed in the same for a long time. company for years. For I've careers. never seen that in any other unit yeah. ever. I can't Only. really say that in my case that was unique. I actually made the choice to stabilize there. Did you? Well, yeah. A lot of units don't even let people do that. A lot of like, hey man, yeah. you've been here for four years. Tough time tough to shit. Go. Needs yeah. the army, you know. I mean, I spent my entire career in one platoon. Four and a half years in one platoon. I, I mean, you know, that's yeah. that's, that's it was kind of like Fort Stewart kind of had a, you know, fuck that. That's, that's not worth going down. So well, I, I think it, I think it had to do with their op tempo. I mean, yeah. you know, the, the brigades and third ID were yeah. deploying to Iraq every 18 months, starting from April, 2003 until 2010. 2010. Right. Yeah. You know, like they're, it really wasn't in their interest to move people around. <laughs> they're like, Oh, well you can PCS them, but then we have to bring somebody mm -hmm. new in to learn how to drive a Bradley. Like might as well keep right. them all here. Right. Um, so I think it's it's unusual, and I think it was a mistake because I think it led to a lot of good soldiers becoming shitty NCOs mm -hmm. because they never they never learned anything else. They never got out of their yeah. comfort zone. They never learned True. anything new. So they yeah. just stayed and like, hey, you're a war hero. You've been on like three deployments. Like you you know done all this stuff. So we're gonna leave you alone. And they never they never developed professionally. My opinion. One staff sergeant beep. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> there's there's a there's a lot of staff sergeant beeps. <laughs> <laughs> well, I yeah, my my leadership abilities were definitely stifled by uh, my position and the length of time that I was in the medic platoon at Fort Stewart. Mm -hmm. But uh, I like to think that I brought a sense of continuity with it. And, yeah, for um, sure. Right, and that's important for the young guys coming in. Man, they need some continuity right. with some enlisted guys too. I think that's helpful. Hmm. Well, especially with a with a deployment frequency like that, you have yeah. to have some continuity, or you end up with what happened with us. In 2012, yeah. where you had an entire company of people with like three people with combat experience. Yeah. Or people yeah. who don't know each other very well. You oh, know? Right. Yeah. And that too. Yeah. So, but you actually have the unique distinction of having a previous deployment to Iraq. You might be the first person we've interviewed who actually has, oh, I, I, I'll say, I take that back. You have two deployments to Iraq. Your mm -hmm. first deployment when shit was actually real versus the OIF 7. Yeah. I would say it's, it was winding down my first deployment. Um, I deployed so, in, I think it was like 2000 and early 2008. I think I got back in like 2010 or something. It was 15 months mm -hmm. uh, was our first deployment. A second deployment, OF7, was 12 months. Mm -hmm. And yeah. uh, uh, the third was obviously Panjway. Seven. Yeah. I was on, um, as you know, and as we've talked about in a decent detail on this podcast, basically nothing happened. But you were down in Baghdad. No, you were in, you were in Missoula for seven but uh, just take a couple minutes and talk about that first Iraq deployment because unlike 2007, or sorry, the OIF-7, um, it was actually a little bit heated. Something was going on. Yeah. Um, so I was stationed in several places uh, with several different units while I was in OIF-5. 
Um, originally, I did. I was with the scouts as a scout medic, and then we did, uh, uh, you know, basic cover down missions for all the units that that needed some extra help or something like that. We did QRF, uh, a lot of high value target snatches in the middle of the night. Um, and then once uh, Staff Sergeant Hubble got blown up, uh, I ended up taking his position as a, I was like a PFC at the time. And I took over a senior medic position with the actual Bravo company Yeah. in Jimia in a bombed out hospital. And um, I did that for a, a couple of months. Afterwards, they sent me to uh, Alpha Company to cover down on another medic that uh, ended up having to having to leave. And so I was in this place called Auto Mall. It was like a three story shopping mall. And if you want to hear like ever be in a creepy spot, like sleep in a bombed out shopping mall that has just just completely empty, and then walk down into the basement and see just empty, empty. What do you call them? Like the glass cabinets and stuff like that it's just so creepy it's just weird (laughs) and you're just like i'm in the middle east i'm three thousand miles away from home and i'm in a mall and it's it's like i've seen that movie it's a zombie apocalypse movie (laughs) (laughs) it's just just so creepy and like you like wake up in this like in a in a side of a store in the third story building you take a pee inside of a gatorade bottle and then shove it out of like a a window filled with sandbags just Mm -hmm. it's just it's just surreal that is, and that's actually one of the things that I think the people who had a lot of experience in Iraq versus Afghanistan is they were so strikingly different. I mean, I remember the few times, like the, maybe twice that we actually went into someone's home and mm. during OIF-7. Yeah. Um, you know, it was like they had televisions. Mm-hmm. They'd have like a sink. Oh, yeah. Oh, nice you know, place. Like, it's like marble. It's yeah, like marble, there's some places that were like, tiles, it was like a mansion. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, especially cool. in Baghdad, I would imagine it was even more so pronounced. You know, oh like yeah, well, oh yeah. I mean, there was a stretch of road on route Tampa. That wasn't Tampa. It was the road just to the east of Tampa in Missoula. There was like really nice apartment buildings, like pools and mm-hmm. things like that. So you go, you go from that to Afghanistan, which is literally like living in medieval times. I mean, the yeah. difference between the life oh, yeah. of a Panjway farmer in 2012 versus 1012 mm-hmm. are not that different. You know. Maybe he has a cell phone. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> He's got a motorcycle instead of a horse. You know. Yeah, it was but, weird. Well, I mean, man. That's that's the thing. But you ask most Americans, they would generalize the, the two countries as being the same. Yeah, you know, oh, they're both in the desert. It's both a bunch of you Mid- know, the Middle East. Even though it's the Middle East, right? Yeah, technically Southwest Asia. Yeah, or I don't know if Asia, I was. If you want to be politically correct about it, yeah. Like <laughs> I, I was surprised when we first got there. I was expecting like mountains, like we were going to be yeah. in Cornwall. Yeah. You know what I mean? I was. That's what I was expecting. And then mm-hmm. like flying into great fields, it was just nuts. I was just yeah. like, well, oh, even this, even looking at the great fields, you're like, what is this? Is this flat? Right. Yeah. This looks flat. Yeah, this looks easy. Old, is this going to be an easy not. deployment? Yeah. Hey, uh, no. But your gear had to set up, be set up completely different. The missions were completely different. Like, oh, if I, yeah. like you were riding around in trucks everywhere. I kept my main aid bag inside the trucks and I kept mm-hmm. the smaller aid bag on my back. All your gear and stuff like that was, was like organized in front of you to where you had like farther link out. You'd never lay on your stomach. You were always clearing in the mount position. So you'd want to mm-hmm. face threats. You'd want as much between you and the bullets as possible. So you'd like, you'd organize everything on your gear to be straight. And Panjway was completely different. We were shooting and moving and, and, and getting down. And everything had to be flat and, and just 
positioned in a certain way. It was just a completely different mission. It, that's what threw me for the loop most of it. Um, yeah. At least one, that was one of the things, obviously. So but, how, uh, how did you end up uh, in Panjway with us in Bravo Company? Uh, they found out that uh, you guys were going to be going into some hairy stuff, and I was one of the medics with the most um, experience. Experience, yeah. At this particular time. Um, so they decided that, uh, Doc Rudy was another, another hard one. And then Salvador and, um, it was, it, who was the third one? Doan came in later on. Mm. Uh, hollers. Hollers. Right. Yeah. So Hollers. Hollers was pretty new. Yeah. Hollers was pretty new, but Salvador was like a PT stud. So he was <laughs> going to cover down like, yeah. you know, whatever it could. And I was like the old crusty angry veteran that would be with Rudy to like let him, let him know he's doing like okay and mm-hmm. then things are going well you know and then like Rudy's like this like darkly sarcastic just this cynical person that yeah. laughs at anything you know terrible and it was like we made a perfect pair it was like this weird little mm. um concentrated we had, ex- we had extremely yeah, competent like, medics like not to not to not to blow you up or anything but like yeah like I've worked with a lot of different units and a lot of, you know, and medics, they, they can be hit or miss. They can have like a, ho- a hospital mindset or they can have a combat mindset. Mm-hmm. Like all of ours were yeah. like, if you took their aid bag away from them and gave them a machine gun, they were straight killers. You know, yeah. like they, they, yeah. they were, they had the mindset. They were, they were, they were part of the team. They were, they, they were never a liability ever. They yeah. were they, like, we were never worried about our medics holding us back. Company no, a lot of combat too. units don't have have not yeah. had that kind and of co- experience. Company wide too, man. That was yeah. another thing. Like it's not Top like the bottom. just first platoon had good good medics. Like we were very fortunate in that regard. No, I mean, how much of that was by design, and how much of that was just chance? Well, um, like we said, we heard that you guys were going into some really hairy stuff, so we wanted to organize the best possible team to get the job done. Um, mm-hmm. As a medic, your job is to preserve the fighting force, so. Uh, why not do the absolute best you possibly can yeah. with training? We tried organizing our gear uh, the best possible way that we could. Came up like spray painting things, working out new ways of transporting patients with you know gear that we had on hand that we might in situations we might run into. Individualized training. I, I, there was a lot of times prior to the deployment where you know we just disappeared out of the company and oh you know out of the headquarters and the 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 image is that, oh, the medics are just going to go do whatever. Yeah, we went we went out of the AO, and we actually did training in small individualized um, settings, situations. Yeah. What was that command relationship like? I mean, obviously, you know, you belong to third, and, um, you know, Dave belonged to first, and all that kind of stuff. They, they were organic to the platoons, but also you guys kind of had your own. You were also like the medic platoon. Mm-hmm. Um, and you guys worked and trained together. So how did that kind of work with you belonging to a line company, but also ensuring that you had accountability to your guys and that you guys were staying up to date on training and stuff like that? Uh, most of it was organized with the senior medics. So you basically have two chains of command, right? Yeah. Your first chain of command is with the medics. Okay. So you want to keep them abreast of the situation, but they give you a lot of latitude because they know that you're trying to balance the two. Right. So, um, Honestly, if we had any problems, we'd just go straight to Rudy, and he's our link back to the main flagpole where headquarters right. platoon is. Versus, like, we could also talk to the commander, Captain Kitching, directly. Right. You mm-hmm. know, and it 
it wouldn't be an issue or something like that. And he gave us a wide, wide latitude of autonomy too. Um, yeah. We just had to show that we were competent, which wasn't really a problem at that particular point. We didn't have a, a way to really prove ourselves up until then. Everybody was fairly new. All of us at all of us at this point, we've melded into platoons at our yeah. own pace for a long while now. Everybody knew what was going to go on, like how we were going to do team building. It served two purposes. One, uh, it climatized us to the platoon and like the platoon got to know us as well. But it also provided the sense of um, disconnect. Uh, it, it was kind of, it's, it's a balance, balancing act. You don't want to be too close to the guys that you're going to make decisions that could possibly uh, cost lives. But at the right. same time, you wanted to be close enough to them for them to trust you. And yeah. it's just like a very difficult type of um, well, and you want to relationship too, you know, like yeah. you don't, I mean, it's like, it's a, that's an interesting that you, you point that out, that there's a mm -hmm. fine line between, you know, them being your brothers, but also having to make, you know, triage decisions like, you know, who you may have to decide to, to give up care on somebody else to save somebody else that has a better chance of surviving. And yeah, yeah. That yeah. was always on the back of our minds, <clears throat> you know, and that's why it was always my rule that there's two people that you're always best of buddies with. Medics and cooks. <laughs> uh, don't forget the supply guy. Yeah, okay, I can go with supply. Yeah, yeah supply. Yeah. But when you're deployed, medics, cooks, and supply, always be buddy, man. Don't talk down yeah. to them. Don't give them a hard time. You know, yeah. when you're buddy. back in the rear, though, you got to make friends with the armor so you can get your weapon in first time go. Yeah, right. Yeah. <laughs> that, 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 that's an expensive relationship. That yeah, is. That, that yeah. is a cash relationship. I was very lucky in that the armor was David Steffen. So I yeah. had that oh, made. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I didn't give a shit how clean your weapon was. <laughs> <laughs> He's, nope, nope, brings out the pinky. No, nope, what is that? Yeah. Look at your stone oh, chamber. Man. Yeah. So, And to those armorers in the army right now, it's supposed to work dirty. If the star <laughs> chamber's dirty, that's how it's supposed to work. So stop <laughs> fucking your guys, and if they bring it up, and it's clean enough to cycle and function, it's clean enough to go on the shelf. Yeah. When, yeah. when you hand out an M4, and it's and it's black, and then you get it back, and it's scrubbed down to the bare metal, that's not what's supposed to happen. No. You know? yeah. Yeah. It's supposed to be phosphated, right? Yeah. It's supposed <laughs> yeah. to have some type of coating on it. What's, it's supposed to look like I took a grinder to it in a mechanic shop. <laughs> right. Yeah. yeah I think there's a certain be able to eat off the star chamber of your weapon. Get out of here. Shut up. Man. It runs better dirty. And yeah, everybody knows it. Stop wasting your Joe's time. Yeah. All right. I'm, uh, off, I'm off my pedestal. Sorry. Anyway. <laughs> <laughs> that's a, I mean, as a medic, like, I even knew, like, you're supposed to run the saw hot and wet. That's, that's just the way it yeah, is. Yeah. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like that's the way two forty is. That's the way saw is. Yeah. I mean, oh, we could. I got, I got a diatribe against the saw and its unreliability in incredibly <laughs> dusty environments. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, too many bad. times where it's going kachunk uh -huh. instead of ratting off like it's supposed. <laughs> or to. then you you look down because you've been jumping over grape rows and like in and out of canals. All the links are all jacked all up. Jacked up. Yeah. So then you're like, well, now I can't use. You couldn't use a nut sack. You had to go to using the big plastic thing. So it wouldn't yeah. do that. And that. Oh yeah, I could ramble for hours. Right, so could, fortunately, could the one time that it that I really needed it to work, it worked. And that's yeah. because I ran it incredibly hot and incredibly wet. Just the way it is. I mean, I, when I was when I was running the saw, dude, I'd I'd, I'd carry the little uh, lube like the spray thing bottle. Thing yeah, yeah, in my thing, and like every twenty minutes, just soak it down you know? yeah you just have like two magazines pulled out and like that's the bottles just in one of the magazine yeah. holders. <laughs> 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 oh, 
I carry uh, one, carry one fewer magazine so I can carry an extra bottle of lube. But we won't we won't geek out on the inefficiencies of saws that we were using that were probably getting filled in OIF one or two. <laughs> they were they were they were we we looked at the serial numbers we tracked them back to their lot and the lot was like late two thousand two. We're like, are yeah. you serious? Yeah, yeah. dude. The the Afghan National Army had newer saws than we did. Yeah, man. Yeah. I believe it. Anyways. <laughs> that's that's an incredibly invigorating subject for our non-military yeah, listeners. Yeah. Yeah. Um so we get to Panjway and we're starting to kind of um you know, get into the thick of it all. Uh you know, was there a moment for you, Alex, where it was just kinda like this eye awakening moment? Because you like I said before, you've had this previous two deployments and the first your first deployment was obviously more violent than the second deployment. Mm. But this third deployment was obviously gonna shape out to be mm-hmm. a, just a different ball of wax altogether for you. So do you did you have a moment where you were like, this is going to be fucking hard and different and real and a grind, you know? Um, It's not a particular moment that it stands out inside my mind, but it was like prior, like in prior deployments, like you got shot at, but you were always close to a vehicle you could hop into real quick. You know what I mean? Or a tank mm-hmm. that just was, it just soak up any type of explosion, whatever it is. RPGs, V bids, didn't matter as long as it wasn't like a uh, a shape charge. Yeah, you know. But uh, this one just felt like you were just you were walking, and all you had was just your armor, and it you felt not invincible, but protected, somewhat protected. But out there, it was just when first time I got shot at out there, I was just like, man, I'm too slow. Like I gotta, I gotta lose some weight. I got, right. you know, I gotta, I gotta jig around some gear. I'm, why am I carrying all these extra pounds and stuff like that? Um, mm-hmm. I just remember like the, what really stood out to me was the hindsight of it. And there was a portion in there where we ended up like, I don't know if you guys remember, but it was like every six days, somebody was like losing legs or died. Oh yeah. And it was like, yeah, month and a half you know month two months long and you're just basically starting at the end of may going all the way through early july yeah yeah we were either it was you know brazos luxmore uh Mm -hmm. pinnock lily jay sedino um boyce like i mean actually that it really went at that pace for the company all the way through October, October, yeah, well, September, yeah, yeah. I mean, really, every so every we had couple. we had like a three week break where nobody got hurt yeah. in yeah. September. That was like, no, that's not true. That's season. not true at all. We lost we lost Swindle September twentieth, and yeah, um, you know, uh, Perez, Perez got, got hit on the second. So yeah. that that might be the biggest gap right there. The, the the eighteen days between those two might be the only gap where somebody wasn't sent home. Yeah, yeah, yeah that was it. Just looking back on it now it's just it it's head and shoulders different than than anything else that i had seen at that particular point and uh it was um it was very impactful it was shocking and it's for the i mean even the guys that had been around the block a couple of times i remember serving with ncos in third platoon that like that was like their fifth sixth deployment and mm-hmm. you know they're just their eyes are wide open there's you know they're they're terrified you know yeah everybody was just it was almost worse to know better. I th- like looking back. Yeah. I like think the guys so that had been on multiple deployments and had yeah. seen seen something different 
and then to see this contrasted because like for us that were new we're like okay well here we go this is combat and they're like no this isn't normal (laughs) yeah like we discussed earlier like it's when you knew better you were just like i just i can't tell anybody this because if i do it's just going to start a panic you know what i mean yeah i'm going to look like i'm you know overly dramatic right i just want to i'm just trying to go with the flow and (laughs) yeah and you're just like nothing's right this isn't right yeah Yeah. (laughs) that's one of the things that's really dawned on me in the past few years and actually especially since we've started the podcast and we've gotten to talk to people with multiple deployments and stuff like that as you realize how unique it was like i'm not gonna say it was you know it was one of the worst or anything but i think where i the baseline always land on it is it was it was worse than most but not as bad as some Mm-hmm. So like there's units out there that have had significantly worse deployments than we did. Mm-hmm. But as far as like the baseline standard wears deployment, but all, all deployments are unique. No deployments are the, no two deployments are the same, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, but absolutely. I've, I've just realized that it was, it was pretty intense. I mean, I did the math on it the other day. I wish I wouldn't have. <laughs> oh, Jesus. <laughs> I didn't do the exact math because I can't do math. I can't even calculate the tip on a bill. Oh no. But, uh, Basically, you had about a 40% chance of getting fucked up. Like, you know, travel, yeah, shot, IED. Like I rounded it a, down, yeah. I was at yeah, 33%. Yeah. Yeah. So, if you include the KIAs, and not including our Afghan counterparts, this is just the American formation, yeah. you had about a 40% chance of getting fucked up when you stepped outside that wire. Yeah. And yeah, well, uh, that's, that's kind of mind-boggling to think about. That's not, not yeah. good not Some good other, odds. Yeah, well, yeah, you, you, you heard about, like, platoons... Like a platoon spends the time at like an OP or like a really small comp and they all get, you know, awards and purple hearts. But mm. it's for it at a company level, I yeah. mean, I can't remember. It's like we had 29 purple hearts for a company force of 70 guys. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know. Uh, and just I mean, to just to clarify, like this isn't a dick measuring contest. No, 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 no. I'm not trying to say that we, we were toughing it out and we were badass. I just want the story of what was going on there to be accurately represented because it was a unique situation for us to be in. So, and what was interesting about it is when we first got there, you know, everyone was like, yeah, we're going to go like, cause most people were new, um, and never been to combat. So everyone to get their CIB or their cab or their their CMB. Um, there was, you know, first platoon got in that first gunfight and then, Third platoon. <laughs> oh my god! They spent three weeks trying to get into a fight. Um, do you me- do you remember that? Yes. Yeah. And I just <laughs> always thought I was like, guys, you just don't know what you want. You're 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 gonna get what you're wishing for, and it's just yeah. not. It's not what you want, and it just. What was crazy about it is I, I remember our first firefight, and uh, there were people that absolutely stood out, and it was. Um, I remember one of them was Heaton. Like he, like we're taking fire and like everyone's down inside this ditch, but he's standing up, like laying down 44, like 40 mic mics inside of uh, this gray putt. And then I see him spin like he's been hit. And I thought, okay, here it is. You know, here we go. And then he turns back around and, you know, yells expletives and then launched several more rounds back. And what had happened was he actually got shot through his IFAC, his first aid kit and the, we do you remember like these little uh cards we used to to have like they had it was yeah. laminated and had all our yep. names mm-hmm. and stuff like that mm-hmm. well that bullet went through several names and you guys are talking about superstition like that played in the back of people's minds <laughs> like was yeah. my name <laughs> was my name on that where that hole was i just but uh it was just 
you saw some people that were just confused, didn't know what to do, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. others that knew what to do, and then just there's some guys that just stood out head and shoulders above the rest, and um, mm-hmm. and you know just laid down the scunion. Yeah, <laughs> that that was before we cleared the horn, right? Like you guys got oh, a yeah. tick before that. Yeah, that's why that was before that. we cleared the horn. And uh, let's see here. Yeah, before we cleared the horn, we were hit with that, and then not too long after that, we went to the horn. Yeah, yeah. I, I, me- I remember them being fairly close together because I mean, there's we hit our, we had our first firefight April 25th. We were mm-hmm. started clearing the horn like May 24th or something. Mm-hmm. So like there it was only a month, and I know there was a good bit of rushing around because i know our our other um squad was trying to get into a gunfight too and um lieutenant mcgrath was very aggressive about trying to get into a gunfight um almost uh, <laughs> uh you know we, we can edit things out but uh, i would say he was, no, he was pushing mm, pushing irresponsibly well, he got his when he got shot so yeah he, he just... got his yeah yeah he got <laughs> um but that, that's a that's a comment we've heard from a couple people uh brian kitchings mentioned yeah. it uh nince mentioned he's like careful what you ask for mm-hmm. um, yeah. and i like the way that nince plays like careful what you ask for because when it happens you have no control over what happens next right yeah and it was you don't control when it ends yeah it was an issue with the medics too i mean you'd have guys that were just they had no experience whatsoever and then they were i mean they were competent and intelligent and you know able to do the job but they would also you know there was a thought in the back of their mind like I got to start building my tower of power. I need my CMB, you know? Right. Yeah. And that's just not like to, to me, like when I was deployed, that's just one of those things you just don't wish for. Cause it's right. the one award somebody has to be, somebody else has to be hurt. Yeah. For you for to sure. do it. And it's just, I don't know. It, it seemed disrespectful to me, but um, it was just, but, I mean, that's, I think that's just a product of the, the army the culture, army. you know, yeah. badge Especially chasing a army. Yeah. Yeah. I yeah. Mean, Cause you, I mean, it's not, I don't think that people wanted like their buddies to get hurt or killed so they get a CMB, but they also didn't want to be the only medic without one. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, so it's like, it's, it's just kind of a, it's a weird dynamic. Uh, I mean, even with a CIB, I mean, no one has to die to get a CIB, but so people's lives have to be in danger. Yeah. It's like Definitely. desiring, desiring to get shot at means you're kind of wishing that somebody else or you is, is put in da- or you is in danger, <laughs> yeah. and, and, it, and it's when you when you break it down like this, like you're wishing for your for your life to be in danger so that you can have a test your metal and test yeah, your metal and have something on your chest. Yeah, yeah right. exactly. Literally have have a little piece chest. of tin. Yeah. Right. Well, um, I, like I said, it's just it's sometimes it's just a rite of passage for young men that have to yeah. they they have to go against something that's bigger than themselves. Hundred percent. Um, it's just it's one of those things of growing up. Yeah, I think that a. Uh, a unifying choice for people who join combat arms or become a combat medic or whatever, you know, they, they want to do that. They want to go to war. They want to have, especially those who joined during the time of war, you know, and that's, that's actually something that's kind of unique to our military experience and the timing that we all joined. We knew we were going to war Mm -hmm. when we enlisted and it wasn't a draft D army. So you towed the fucking line and you volunteered to do it because that was something that you wanted to have in your experience. If you didn't, then you should have been a different MOS, you know? And like this, I mean, people will join it because they want to pay for college or whatever. That's totally cool. Like, you know, that's fine. But those who want, want to be a combat medic, want to be, you know, 19 Delta or want to be, um, a 13 Foxtrot, 11 Bravo, they do it fully knowing, well, probably not fully understanding, 
but they fu- they fully know. At least the more intelligent and capable ones fully know. There's, there, there's definitely a percentage of that population <laughs> yeah. that was tricked yeah. into it by the recruiter. Yeah. Hey man, but, if you like if you like Call yeah. of Duty, man, this is just like yeah. Call of Duty in real hey, life. Man, just like playing Call of Duty, bro. But <laughs> yeah, they, they do it. They join knowing that they want to go to that experience. Yeah. And what really blows me away is you're talking about heating this laying down scunion, you know, is when I talk to people who weren't there, people who don't understand what was going on, when it comes to guys like that, like some dudes just have it and some dudes don't. Yeah. And it's not a reflection of their character. Like there's really good guys, stand up guys that just didn't quite have it, mm-hmm. you know? And then there's guys who do have it that are total pieces of garbage, you know? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like somebody yeah. I wouldn't trust with my dog, much less, you know, anything else. Yeah, that was but the weirdest thing. Heaton, you're not a human piece of garbage. No. <laughs> Heaton, that wasn't where we were going with the conversation. No, no, no. Heaton's I mean, okay. Heaton's a good dude. Yeah. But you're right. I mean, there, there are there are people I, would, I wouldn't trust with the, with the keys to a car that I already sold. Yeah. That, that, <laughs> were, that I would trust awesome with my life in combat. In combat. Yeah. And so sometimes you get that perfect intersection where there's where it's both. You, know, you yeah. trust them implicitly outside yeah. of that world, but then they have it. They have that thing, whatever it is that drives us. I don't know if it's, I don't like the word warrior because I feel like it gets overused in our society, but, you know, that warrior impulse, that drive. And, you know, that's not a, not a commonly found combination, you know. Yeah, and his name is Tom Evans, and he's on. He Netflix. is. <laughs> yes. He's just really. Yeah. He's, he and, was a unique combination of a person. I'll tell you that right now. Yeah. He was. Yeah. Yeah. Tom and it's good. almost. Uh, I'll wrap up, and then I'll get off my soapbox. <laughs> <laughs> but it's almost um, a cliche at this point. People who are steeped in military uh, call uh, military culture. But it's never, you know, it's never the big macho guy. It's never the guy who's talking about slaying and murdering motherfuckers. And, you know, it's got, it's always just, it's always the Miguel Perez's, the unassuming little kid from Smothers. Compton. It's Smothers. Smothers. Yeah. yeah. It's Tom Evans who's like laid back, mm-hmm. you know, kind of goofy, chill bro, you know. Yeah. <laughs> and then, you know, it's it's like the geeky dude. Who, like it's it's boys who geeked out on Skyrim <laughs> yeah. and love playing the Nexus nerds, and Allies, the you know. nerds. It's 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 Heaton who's as baby faced as they come, you <laughs> know. I mean, he looks like a twelve year old boy, or at least he did in two thousand twelve. The way he <laughs> talked, it was like he was like a poli sci major, you know. What yeah, I mean? he yeah. was like this. Like, he's back doing that stuff too, which I think is really cool. <laughs> yeah. He's back. It's a, you know, you he's in a, he's in a different kind of trenches, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah that's yeah. true. I'll tell you the the scariest person I've ever met, and I I can't I can't out him because I never even knew his name. I only knew him by a call sign. Mm-hmm. The scariest dude I ever met was like five to one hundred and twenty five pounds, and you didn't take him seriously until he started talking. And you're like, yeah, okay, I will <laughs> never date your daughter. <laughs> <laughs> That's one of the things that get me, like the guys that are like way deep down the wormhole. Oh, it's yeah. always the dude that look like he could be a CPA. Or is he a Delta operator? You know, right? Like it's, yeah, it's, yeah. <laughs> that's it's the never... that's the advantage of being unassuming. You know, it's just... yeah, exactly. Yeah, absolutely. Yep. Um, so we kind of started to segue into clearing the horn. Yeah. Um, and clearing the horn was a pretty intense operation, especially for Third Platoon. I mean, it was five to seven days. You guys were getting fucked up every day. Yeah. Um, you know, without going into too much detail, because we've talked about you know clearing the horn a lot of detail and it's been told on other podcasts too but um what was that what was generally what that what was that experience like for you because that was kind of your first extended like oh shit we're really fighting 
Well, the planning preparation phase of it was uh, was pretty straightforward. We packed up, made a plan and stuff like that, which obviously fell apart. Um, <laughs> day one. <laughs> day one. Day one. Yeah, the best laid plans. Yep. Um, so uh, first day, when did we get, was that the first day when we got a fire firefight in front of that compound? We just like demolished. Maybe. I don't know. I was, in the, I was living the good life in the trucks. So <laughs> I remember the first day we ended up getting a firefight from a comp. Uh, from a compound to the east if i can't remember east west i can't remember the cardinal direction but they ended up calling in mortars and they sent in like you see the first willie pete which is a marking ground mm-hmm. and that's it's, day it, two yeah oh was it day two okay mm-hmm. yeah first day was just like you know we were Stomping walking around. yeah yeah you know and it, everything seemed to be going pretty smooth right and it was day no two it was it was for breakfast <laughs> yeah it was like eight o'clock in the morning yeah <laughs> yeah I remember, yeah. Um, yeah, first first day was pretty smooth. Second day we had the compound. Um mm-hmm. and we just we lit that up. I remember walking through it and there was like there's like these shot up and burning cows, like and it's it was smelled like barbecue and I was so hungry. <laughs> like it, was, it just brought me back to home in Kansas City and I was like, oh man, we just got canceled by PETA. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Sorry, folks. Yeah. But um yeah, there's um the you know and then we bedded down the second day we ended up um we got fired on we were sitting in this hallway you know we just bedded down for the night in this hallway and um like some guy just ran out and like shot a whole magazine a 762 down this this hallway and everyone has their their gear off and miraculously no one was hit you know and it was just this kind of crazy untouchable moment that we all felt and then you know they tried to shoot off one law didn't fire second law didn't fire and classic then, yeah it's just <laughs> i mean it's munitions from like vietnam you know so yeah. but anyway so like the eod has to blow it up it's the beginning of the third day and while they're trying to blow up these laws they end up finding another ied that we missed that we almost drove over mm. so at this particular point nobody is hurt at all we've gotten through a couple of firefights i've almost had mortars called in on me yeah but it's it's all been like these lucky, miraculous close calls and nothing has happened. And I'm thinking, maybe we're gonna get out of this, you know, unscathed. It's gonna be oh, no. it's gonna be okay. And then uh I ended up getting shifted over to closer to some of the first platoon elements down near the riverbed. And Doc Rudy and Captain Kitching went with the rest of third up towards the middle, and then we ended up they ended up getting into a firefight that was pretty hairy. Um, yeah. If I remember correctly, it lasted about three hours. Yeah, it was a long day, man. Yeah. yeah. And we were, I remember just, I remember listening to the gunfire and it was just, I kept on like asking, like, why aren't we moving? How come we're not flanking? Why aren't we, like, we should be getting into this fight and we're just not, we're waiting. We can't get, like the way the terrain was situated, we couldn't get up from the riverbed come around and then hit it from the backside we didn't have any clearing elements it would just and i just yeah. that, i just remember feeling so helpless like just listening to everybody on the radio like you're you're hoping and praying that nobody's hurt and yeah yeah you just hear this like constant stream of gunfire that's the way it was for us as, as first platoon because we spent the entire operation being down there to the south mm-hmm. and like not that far 200 meters yeah. And, you know, we talked a lot about how those 200 meters can make a world of difference in your experience. You know? Yeah. And it was just like, I'm so close. Just, can we please just, yeah. can we please just try? Yeah. You know I mean? Yeah. But then the and, ID uh, 
just keeps you from doing that. You know, it keeps you from being able to make those maneuvering. Yeah. You know, those maneuvers and stuff. Yeah. That was one of the things that stood out to me most in this deployment was like my my path of movement was dictated by spray paint lines. Yeah. I just yeah. it was infuriating. You know what I mean? Well, but I mean, almost like, to the point that the medics couldn't maneuver at all. No, yeah. I'm not. We weren't. I'm not gonna send a medic up to grab that guy who just got his leg blown off. I'm gonna grab him and I'm gonna bring him back because God forbid you step on something trying to go get him. Now we're really fucked. Right. Yeah. And so uh, like we had this. I remember the A and A. I think it was the second day. A and A ended up getting blown up near a gray putt. I uh-huh. I hopped in the Gator. We drove down. I got about a hundred meters away from him. I start running towards him, and then all of a sudden it was like I realized mid step that the area wasn't cleared, and it was like, uh. Yeah. yeah, and then I try to like walk backwards through my steps. I tell them like, "Come to me, come to me, hurry up." Mm-hmm. They finally. And it's got weird because when when we talk about like the IED in that way, I feel like a lot of people in their mind like they think of a minefield. Like yeah. they go back to like Vietnam or something where there's a marked minefield, and oh, you you suddenly realize you're in the middle of a minefield. It's like mm-hmm. no, the whole whole the place, whole... nothing nothing is marked. Well, I mean, it's kind of marked, but like there's not like an area where they're like, "Hey, if you walk through here, there's mines everywhere." It's just like. They're they're all over. They're there's just, yeah. There's no discrimination. There's no, you know. And about two months in, you knew all the rules. It was like, no, yeah. don't go near shade. Don't go near trees. Stay away from the walls. Anything that's going to make your life easier, yeah. don't do it. Don't stay off yeah. the roads. Step in somebody else's footsteps. Step in a tire track. You know what I mean? Yeah. It was just no intersections, no bridges, no yeah, yeah anything no, that would make your don't life go through easier. a gap in the wall, make your own hole. I mean, mm-hmm. God, yeah. how how many walls did we tear down oh, in God. the district of Panjoy? How much C four did they go through, blowing all the holes in it? <laughs> yeah. I felt I was so jealous of them. I was like, please, yeah. can I just can I can I just please set one up? You know, and yeah, yeah, of course, because yeah, because you got you guys use C four a lot to blow holes in walls. Yeah, yeah, we we use the Huli tool. The Huli tool. Yeah, we just or we shoulders. Just, I remember like whole patrols. My I come back my entire right shoulder was just like just. <laughs> dominated it was because brutal. for some because it for some like, reason these walls over. would be resistant to explosions you could put c4 yeah. on a wall it wouldn't, wouldn't yeah. move but you could literally just walk over to it and just push it yeah over. <laughs> push it, <laughs> over. It, push it defies logic a hellfire <clears throat> missile is stopped by this thing where you can just push yeah. it over it gave me a whole new respect for dirt mm-hmm. right yeah and you know Human and animal feces, but <laughs> <laughs> same shit, different that's, days. That's 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 the glue that holds it all together. Yeah, <laughs> literally. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Oh man. Yeah, I mean the the horn was 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 an, a weird experience for you know, for, for everybody. Yeah. You know, I was down in the I was down in the the um, riverbed. riverbed just mm-hmm. doing resupply, and other than the fact I got blown up by like a two hundred pound IED, it was pretty chill. Mm-hmm. You know, it was, it was a good time. Um, but you know. Then up right up on the bank, there's Luke and the mm. rest of First Platoon, and they're not getting in any gunfights, but they're fucking miserable. There's yeah. no shade. They're just walking across open desert and you know hearing gunfights. And then the next step up is Captain Kitching's element, and they're just getting fucked up every day. And then I know it's just yeah, it's interesting. You know, the further up you went from the river, the worse it got. I mean, Josh Wetzel and Alpha Company One Two Three, they they hit an IED. They had guys get hurt. Like mm-hmm. you know, just it was a very bold and uh, kind of foolish operation. Yeah. <laughs> it, was, it was terrifying. It was yeah, terrifying. Yeah. You just, you'd always hear, like, you'd hear stories. Oh, so and so got hit. Okay, next one up. Oh, we got two mm-hmm. people down. Yep. You know, triple amputee. You're like, yeah, oh, man, that's a, that's not good. You know, mm-hmm. and it's just like, yep. you're just, you know, you're waiting, you're ready. You just, 
Well, and they did like, that operation so early in the deployment too. Yeah. Well, they wanted you know, to set a, you wanted to set the stage. Right. They really. I mean, that's yeah. the only way that I, from my personal yeah. perspective, that's that's the what it, they wanted to set the tempo. Yep. And they, they wanted tell to provide them, an we're example. going we're going after you no matter where you are. Right. Yeah. We're Show not afraid force. to walk. Yeah. Essentially, yeah. the swords not afraid like to walk the length of the horn. Yeah. And they did. I mean, that, I mean, that was the only time that we ever ever saw an F sixteen fly at like you know fifty dude. feet above the deck. Yeah. That was cool. There's that was really cool. Yeah. There's been like, like four I, or five I times. I see that dude's face. Yeah. That yeah, was actually dude, like whoa. Did, I, were you guys there for the airdrop for the supplies? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> that was oh that was interesting. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there was a lot of really cool experiences on on yeah. that operation. It felt like uh, war, really. Yeah, it was. Shoo. Yeah. And everyone was pitching in. Like the Kiowa pilots were dropping Gatorades. Like yeah, man. Yeah. Right after the firefight, everybody huddled up inside of this great hut. You know, mm-hmm. this three hour long. Just everyone was smoked. You had like multiple yeah. casualties and stuff like that. I think there was like a, there was people that even shouldn't have even been there at first. There's like a civil affairs person that was like yeah. in the middle of this firefight, <laughs> yeah. and like they had to drag that person down and like hold him down while this was going on. Rudy was mm. telling me it was like they were so close that they could hear them bounding forward to them, mm. and it was just man, it just sounded so terrifying. And yeah. it, like afterwards, we're in this great hut. It's unbelievably hot it's so hot you're just happy to drink boiling water and i'm i remember just giving ivs over and over like a whole box of ivs to guys and i'm like i got a cigarette in my mouth i'm like putting it in theirs while i'm trying to but just trying to stick them over and over and over again trying to tell people jokes to lighten up the mood and it was just it was surreal you got like one guy in the corner taking a crap inside of an ammo can Like, there's there's a one. great picture, and we've shared it before, and I'll share it again. It's kind of iconic, it's actually. It's iconic, and I wish I had the full resolution image. Yeah, like his mind's a little bit degraded after it's been, you know, it's been shared however many times. But mm. of the inside of the gray putt on that day, what exactly what you talk about? And in the front, like there's Steve Kosis, like mm. emaciated, just like yeah, barely awake with an IV running his arm. And you look down the road, and everyone's got a fucking IV in their arm, and everyone's yeah. trying yeah. to eat. And like it looks hot, and no one's wearing any kit, and it's just like it's if you, miserable. If you know and you what just, you're looking at, you you can feel the misery, you can feel it, yeah. And yeah. you know you got another day. Like this is the second day. <laughs> yeah, you like, got another freaking got, three days. Man. Yeah, we yeah. got like eighteen hours left of this. Yeah, like I got to walk way down the horn. Yeah, yeah. It's just, you know. It's crazy. And now the, the good news was after after that day, I think we we scared him a little bit. Because the rest of the time yeah. was was still sketchy, but we didn't get into huge gunfights. It was mm-hmm. pop shots yeah. here and there. Um, and then the trucks came up out of the the riverbed, and we're up for some stupid reason trying to drive the roads on that end of the horn. I don't know how we didn't roll a Mat V into a river, into a creek. But then we finished it. Yeah, and that the yeah. mission um, we did unfortunately lose uh, Sean Brazus mm-hmm. on that mission, and that was that was really sombering for the whole for the whole company, but. In our minds, we're like, hey, it's this mission is over. We got a little bit of relaxation. And we knew that there was another mission coming up later in June. Uh, so, like, it's just going to be normal patrols from here, and then we're just going to kind of catch our breath and get ready for that mission. Right, um, as if a normal patrol would allow us to catch the breath. Right, yeah, <laughs> exactly. Right. But that, what logic? <laughs> yeah. Right, yeah. I mean, they're, 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 the only patrol that would allow us to catch our breath is if we went to, like, Pimaluk. Yeah. yeah, and it you was know, like, and even even Pima Luke could be dangerous. We got maneuvered on Pima Luke before, um, and you're always you're walking like, oh, let's catch our breath and walk 10k out. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. There's yeah. so 
unfortunately, the the days following um, clearing the horn were not easy no. for for us as as a company, and um, that was, you know, one thing we really wanted to talk about was was June tenth, uh, two thousand twelve, and we want to set the stage a little bit. We weren't there, um, and we've talked to you a little bit in the pre interview, and a couple other people, and we think we have a pretty good idea of what what went down, and if you know, we get anything wrong, we we sincerely apologize. But now you guys were doing a mission as third platoon out to the east of Sperwangar. You know, big surprise. This is mm-hmm. where a lot of the bad stuff has happened. Um, in the general vicinity where Jay, uh, where Jay would end up getting hurt a little bit later in the deployment. Um, it's just the those clusters of villages about a click to the east of Sperwangar. Mm-hmm. So it's like Salam Khan, Hajikul Muhammad, Sahidad. Yeah. All I these, believe it was close these. to Salam Khan is where it happened. Yeah, um, the, the which is a bad spot. Essentially. Yeah, it's yeah. a stronghold. The yeah. Skecha to Salam Khan mm. stronghold. Yeah. And then... It was like Skecha, Najat, Salam Khan. Yeah. Yeah, and we didn't Falls. really know that at that point because we had been very limited forays out to east. Um, hmm. You know, we hadn't run into any, any IEDs yet, not for mm-hmm. real, like little ones here and there, but nothing that really threatened our element. So I think we were at the time we were still a little bit naive to the threat to the east. Mm-hmm. Um, you guys were on a patrol, um, and you guys received intelligence that they were setting up an ambush. Um, but you know we'd received tons of times we are always hearing over ICOM, oh they're setting up an ambush for you to the north, and then we go south, you know, or they're doing this. And sometimes you have to choose to believe it, and sometimes you're like, well, we have to go a certain way. Um, and my understanding was, um. At the front of the element, because for some reason the ANA weren't clearing on this day, which wasn't unusual. They just, you know, depending on the phase of the moon, they may or may not clear. Uh, Corporal uh, Bryant J. Luxmore, a third platoon, was was the clearing guy. He was up front with the mine detector. And he rounded a corner. And it's important to note, like, you know, even when there's not when you're not in the village cluster, there's there's walls that are three to five feet tall on either side of the path in a lot of these the fields. So you could you could be walking and you can see that there's an intersection but not be able to see what's beyond the intersection because there's high walls. Um, yeah. And my understanding is uh, Corporal Luxmore reached an intersection and when he came around, they were they were waiting um, with, uh, with a weapon. I, I don't know exactly. They it sounded engaged. like a PKM. Yeah. Hmm. So, I mean, he's, this guy's probably laying on the ground in the prone behind a PKM just waiting for an American to come around the corner. Um, they got into a little gunfight, um, and Corporal Luxmore was hit. What was... So, I mean, that, that's kind of the setup. I'm going to let you tell your story from there. So, yeah, we had received fire earlier after uh, talking to a... Um somebody of importance inside of a village and then we heard obviously the they were sitting up an ambush and uh, naturally we headed towards it so after we received fire we we continued on and um i was towards the rear of the element uh, i believe it was me and i think sergeant maddox was next to each other and uh so you heard fire ring out and Normally, you didn't think much of it. You know, if somebody was hit, 
I mean, there's a good chance that it was just in an extremity and it wouldn't be that serious. So, um, it didn't seem that long, you know, the fire, the, the amount of fire, just maybe hundred rounds, maybe less. And then the call came out for me to go up. And so me and Maddox run up to the front to where Luxmore is. We see him laying on the ground. And uh, everyone else is pulling security. The firing stops, so I think we're, you know, good to go. I check his pulse. I, I don't know if I felt a heartbeat or not. I think I did. I can't be sure. He's not breathing. And I see his eyes, the muscles relax inside of his irises. And uh, I call to the LT and I tell him, get the nine line up. I was like, no pulse, no breathing. And uh, everybody responded like clockwork. And as soon as I, as soon as I finished saying that, the last thing I remember was the firing starting again. And uh, so I turn around to return fire and my M4 had jammed. Uh, I had a double feed because of a faulty magazine. So uh, I just did the only thing I could think of to do that I was trained to do. I laid on top of him, Luxmore, and uh, waited for it to end. Eventually it did. We regained control, uh, security. And then, uh, the decision was made that we need to get him Luxmore back to protection. Um, so we pulled up a sked. That's this little plastic sled with a couple of straps across the top. And, uh, we hastily threw him onto it. Uh, threw one strap up underneath his arms and then we start dragging him as fast as we can back and he's sliding sideways off into the side of the road the little trail that we were on into the riverbank and I jump in immediately and I'm like trying to push him by the hips you know while Sergeant Campbell's pulling the Skedco and like trying to grab him at his shoulders and we're trying to get him back on there. But it's dead weight. We get him up. Uh, we pull him next to this little shed next to this mud house. And uh, <clears throat> he's still on the Skedco now. Uh... I tried throwing like the sneasel pharyngeal in and I don't even know why I did it. I think I just wanted to do something like I already knew what was going on. I think I just needed something for me or to show something to the rest of the guys that I was doing something. And, uh, then <clears throat> Eric was the soldier that was next to me. <clears throat> I told him, that uh, we needed to start packaging him up. So we ended up getting him ready to be airlifted out of there since we were under pretty heavy cover. There was a small field next to the shed that we were at, a little dirt 
hut. We pulled him inside to wait. I borrowed Eretz Gerber so that I could clear out the malfunction just in case we got into another fight. And um, me and him just sat there quietly looking at Luxmore for I don't know how long. And uh, the bird came. They were miraculous. They were they landed in a spot that was literally like the size of a helicopter. And uh, so it's this little muddy field. I don't know why it was muddy. It's like 120 degrees outside. You know, how does water even stay in the ground? But uh, so we're carrying them out. And each step we take, like the mud is building up onto the bottom of your boots, making your legs heavier. And then it's like slopping up over, up to your ankles, halfway up to your knees. And it's deeper. Like every step we get them closer to this, like the slower we're moving. And it just feels like it's taking forever. We finally get into the flight medic. And they load them up. And I try to tell them that Luxmore's gone. But the rotor wash is just so loud you can't really say anything. Just do basic hand movements. And then the bird takes off. I can't remember if we were saluting it or not. But then uh, we basically got out of the field and then started walking after that. And it was like, everything was a haze. You just, everybody didn't have any energy whatsoever. Like, yeah, something, it was like the life was just sucked right out of you. I didn't care whether I got shot or not, whether I stepped on something. I mean, I'm sure I would afterwards, but. Right then and there in that moment. But, you know, you just, you had to do what you had to do. And they tell you when you're a medic. And, you know, they say it in CLS classes. Like, there's, there's people that are going to live no matter what. There's people that are going to die no matter what. And then there's like the 12 to 15% that you can do something about. But what they don't tell you about is like, what to do with that afterwards. And uh, so we make it back to Sperlingar. No other injuries or firefights or anything like that. Maybe they shot at us like right before we got into the gate. I don't think so. That was another mission. Then I remember coming in. And talking to everybody, you know, telling what had happened. I didn't want them, like, you're just, you're waiting for any kind of news where you hear something bad's going on, you know, and you want to know, like, as soon as possible, good or bad, whatever it is, right? So I'm telling everybody, and I'm trying to be calm about it, and, like, the detached thing, hey, yeah, uh, there was, um, yeah, Luxmore's gone, he got shot up, you know, didn't find much. Maybe an entrance wound, not much blood, but there just wasn't much time or sense in looking any longer when you already knew what was going down. So, because Lex, uh, that's what's really sad, tragic. I mean, obviously, it's tragic, but he got hit just above the plate, right? Yeah, 
Yep. Uh, stitched up. Like, apparently, I remember them telling me, like, there were several hits inside of the plate, and then there was a spot. I, I don't know whether it hit inside and bounced around or what, but uh, it just, just – it was so shocking because, like, I had seen – like horrible injuries that people had survived, you know, things that you're just like, there's no way, like this guy has half a face. How is he, you know, he's, how's he still alive? But Mm -hmm. this was, it's jarring because you had to confront your mortality. And it was like, he just, he looks like he should be alive, but he's not. I don't understand. (laughs) Your brain just did not compute. And it was this, uh, really, um, just really profound moment. And then, um, yeah, it was disarming for us to, to learn that because, you know, we go out and you feel like you're protected. You wear a bulletproof helmet, you wear a bulletproof vest, you wear side plates, you wear soft inserts, you wear ballistic underwear, a mm-hmm. diaper, you know, you're in armored trucks. Like what else could you wear other than like, you know, the master chief suit from Halo, like, mm-hmm. and to, like you said, confront your own mortality, be like, if it's your day, it's your day. Yeah. You know? And it's, I think that's, that was tough for those when we heard about it. And as we heard more about what happened, just be like, the, the randomness and the chance. And that was, it's very disarming for a fighting force that plans every aspect to achieve the best advantage possible mm-hmm. to get. You know, sometimes just the the farmer gets you. Yeah, yeah. I mean, as a soldier, you accept a certain amount of chaos, and uh, but there's like certain things that you can control. You know what I mean? You, yeah. Yeah. As a medic, I'd you know you go through your aid bag. What's expired? How can I shift things around? What do I have in here? What do I need to plan for? There was a there was a level of control yes. that you had that you could exert on the situation, and then after that, it was like I realized I didn't have any control, and uh, I had a I just, I couldn't get over that, you know? It's just something that stuck with me. And I think uh, control is one of the things that's, it's an illusion and a reality at the same time about combat. Hmm. And that you can tape your grenade spoons and you can jump behind a wall when you're taking fire and you can return fire, right? Hmm. But at the same time, there's so much of it that is left up to just round in that corner. Yeah, Mm -hmm. yeah, and uh, it was. I've felt helpless like that before, but I mean, as a grown man, I was almost thirty years old. Mm -hmm. You just you're not expecting that gut punch, and uh, the crazy thing is, like, I don't remember being particularly close with him. Yeah, he stayed in the same room as me. We had a conversation every once in a while, and. uh, you know, I went to sleep in that room that night and like there was something missing. You know what I mean? It was just, oh, it was difficult. And that's one aspect of, of loss that stands out to me. And whether it's a KIA or just a WIA, you know, when they're taken away and you don't see them again, mm-hmm. maybe not at all, or maybe not for several months, you're sitting in a room and you're looking at their stuff. And that's like, 
that stuff and their absence amongst the stuff is an incredibly powerful experience and it's amplified almost even more powerful than seeing them wounded mm-hmm. it's 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 more powerful to be out of that environment there's no adrenaline and you're just sitting and staring at an empty bunk um which depending on mission tempo and timelines like it could be sitting there for a couple of days um and that's just it's it's not toxic and it's not like I don't know how to describe it. It's just really it's just impactful. A, yeah. That's gravitas. It's just seeing the remnants of life. Yeah. Afterwards, um, uh, you know, we did a hot wash inside the aid station. Like we call it a, like a critical stress debriefing. So to figure out if you did anything wrong or right, you know, and it was just. Hearing people tell you that you did everything you could is good, all right? Mm. But sometimes it just doesn't help. It doesn't stick. You know, there's some things. But I wanted to know, like, exactly. I was like, I wanted to know exactly his injuries. What, like, if I had gotten the call earlier or if, uh, you know, what what possible training I could get to fix that. Or yeah. is there, you know what I mean? Just anything, any, anything right. to fix that so it didn't happen again. And there wasn't anything. Yeah. It just. Which is something you can never convince yourself. You know, you can look at a piece of paper that says, or, you know, a superior telling you that you did everything that you could. There's nothing else you could have done. You're never right. going to believe it. Right. Yeah. Right. And it's, man, it's just a hard thing to, to let go. But I had something that would take my attention away from that in a couple of days. <laughs> yeah. Right. So, <clears throat> which was Jay. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks, Jay. Appreciate you. <laughs> Jay, uh, if you're out there, okay, it's not your fault. I'm, you, you didn't mess me up. Okay. It's just, everything's cool. Oh, you watched his episode? <laughs> yeah. If it wasn't him, it'd have been someone else. So, yeah. yeah. I mean, his injury was such a weird circumstance. Like the, yeah. the fact that they walked past it and then they came back and then they made that left turn. Like, yeah. it just, just, he rolled the dice and it didn't yeah it didn't play in his favor man no i mean it yeah. just where it was where it was located like mm-hmm. somebody was going to step on it if he had stepped over it maddox behind him would have stepped, stepped on it, on it. or, or yeah. kitchen would have mm-hmm. stepped on it. like it was in such a spot somebody making a right hand turn is going to step would've. on that thing yeah. yeah it was like todd's ied yeah, yeah. todd stepped situation. on that thing if he hadn't stepped on it i might have you know ana definitely would have um, it's just, it's a game of inches out there. Man. Yeah, it is. It really, Todd, uh, I mean, I sat down with Todd. It was me and Dylan. We sat him down when he first got to Spermagar and we're saying, listen, here are the rules. Okay. If you follow the rules, everything is going to probably be all right, right. And it's just like, can you just imagine like as him as a new medic, just sitting down, like listening to these like two crusty old dudes, like chain smoking cigarettes and like. <laughs> screaming in his face about how he can't do anything that gives him any comfort whatsoever. Yeah. <laughs> it's just... Oh, man. In, in Todd's defense on Throat Shop, we didn't have the ability to clear a path up with the other guys. <laughs> yeah. So he was going to be running along an uncleared path anyway. So yeah. I mean, sorry, if I, bud. Look, if, if, if I was there, I, it, you know, it could just easily happen to me. So 
Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's 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 very it's it's hard. It's easy to tell yourself mm-hmm. when they're screaming and they need help. I'm gonna wait so I can get to them safely. It's that another never thing ever. It, it, exactly. Yeah. It's another thing to hear the scream for medic and be like, well, well the path's not clear. I'm not gonna stay. No, come on. Like, you're yeah. gonna go. No, you book it. I just, you I book just, it. It's something. Yeah. It's just some weird human thing. Um, now, two people get blown up. Then you do take a second because <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> that's when you count. You're like one, two. Maybe okay. Well, okay. Maybe yeah. we're in a minefield. Maybe I'm not going to run. Maybe, <laughs> yeah. gonna, maybe I will walk. <laughs> it's just like I don't know if you guys have talked to like hollers or that. You remember not Frosty yet. getting hit? Mm. Yeah, he stepped off the path too. He was in the middle of the formation. I don't know the full story on that. We'll have to get get that one from the so the way guys. the way Hollers tells it is like he stepped Frosty stepped off the path. You know, obviously big boom, huge cloud of smoke, dust. He can't see anything. You know, and Hollers, you know, you're in. It's just so quiet after an explosion. You know, and he's like, Frosty, are you okay? And you hear Frosty go, Uh, fuck no. <laughs> <laughs> Because <laughs> he's like, he just tell he like looked down, like his yeah, leg or something. Yeah, looking at his leg, yeah, yeah. Oh, and it was just like there's, it was like this weird dynamic of like this absolute horror mixed with like the surreal humor. Yeah, mm-hmm. absolutely. Yeah. But, so yeah. she mentioned this the silence after one of those explosions. It's like, yeah, yeah. It's like it's a just, vacuum, I, man. Yeah, and you're just waiting for it to be filled with gunfire. Yeah. You're like, this is the time. This is when they're going <laughs> to take us. Yep. Yeah. What was interesting because Smothers was giving himself a hard time. He's like, I waited so long. I was like, bro, was I like, promise you, like it was two seconds. Second. Yeah. It, was, it was two seconds. Maybe. You don't like, realize time how fast you move. Exactly. Yeah. And that, that silence after an explosion, like in my mind, I agree, it was forever. Mm-hmm. You know, like when the explosion went off that took, uh, took Dennison and Evans and those guys out, it was like, boom. And we're all just like, it was crickets, and we're just listening because you're you're just like, I, I, are they yelling for medic? Are they saying it's okay? What is the radio saying? Like, you're taking all these inputs in, every single piece of information, visual, smell, audio, everything, trying to like learn what happened. And it's it, in your mind, it's like minutes, mm-hmm. but it's yeah. literally like two seconds. And then somebody's medic, and then you're like, well, okay, there we go. Todd, go, God, sorry. I, I always hated that. I hated meeting call. I, I don't. It sounds dumb. It sounds really dumb, but there'd be like, there'd always be an, expl- it just happened in OF5 the first time I started noticing it, like explosion would happen, you hear medic and like the first word that comes out of your mouth is like shit or fuck, you know what I mean? And you're just, yeah. ah! and then after that, it was like, okay, let's, all right, the yeah. work is starting, move to yep. this point, you know, go through. That was always one of the things that like, it makes your stomach drop when you hear medic, Yeah, you know, cause like somebody's hit. And for us, because we worked so closely with A and A, and it's it's very selfish. Uh, but who cares? You know, whatever. Right. When you yeah. hear that stomach drop, the first thing out of our mouths is who's hit. Yes. Right. You know, because it you know if if it was A and A, if it was ALP or whatever, that's easier to stomach. Yeah. Yeah. You know, like so the, the was, first actual casualty hit? I treated in Panjway was uh, um, I think he was a bad guy. He was coming across a river, and they shot him up north. Mm-hmm. trying to cross the river blew out it was like shot through the back blew out what his liver oh, yeah. bummer. <laughs> so i had to like i had to like you know we jumped in the truck boogied out there you know and i'm mm-hmm. I'm just trying to figure out what's going on they got this guy inside of this white van 
And I pulled him out. He's got this like hole almost the size of your fist in, in the front of his abdomen. And he's high as a kite. <clears throat> of course. And uh, so I, you know, place the occlusive dressing, you know, start looking for a sucking, you know, treat it as a sucking chest wound, start thinking about like tension pneumothorax, you know. And, but, you know, we get him into the truck to transport him back to the, the, the cob, the spermagar. And uh, so, like, I'm trying to keep this guy alive the whole time, right? And it's, he's, he's a bad guy. And, it's, like, I'm trying to treat all life the same, right? But in the back of my mind, I know this guy, like, this guy's good training. You know, I'm like, yeah. I want, I got to get yep. the most out of this, right? So, I'm watching him as, as you know, as intently as possible, yep. going through everything, you know, and, uh, you know, start laying in needle chest decompressions when I see that there's, you know, he's having trouble difficulty breathing. He's, he's okay. Like the airway is clear and stuff like that. But I, that guy didn't have a liver and I kept him alive for like 15, 20 minutes. Yeah. Like all the way back to Spurringar. We got him on a plane, kept him alive on the, on the bed, you know, on, okay. on the litter inside the aid station. And then we, we got him out to the LZ and then flew him out. And then they said he died on the way out there. And I thought, I was like, man, if I can do that, I mean, that guy did, that's a liver. They call it a liver because you need it to live. And if I can do that, <laughs> I was like, I'm, a, I'm okay, right? I'm okay. Yeah, okay. All right. I'm feeling yeah, good about good this. Right. Mm. And then Luxmore happens. And I was like, yeah. <clears throat> all the mm. wind out of the sails. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I've had a similar um, experience like the, on our first firefight, you know, after the firefight was over. This kid comes out with the dude in a wheelbarrow. He's all shot up. He got shot in the arm and stomach, you know. Doc Sal's treating him. And I, for some reason, I think I was carrying the hides. So I got pulled over there to, like, put his biometrics in. And I remember, like, picking this dude's hand up. And it was, like, ice cold. Mm. You know, he was definitely dying. And so I went to put it in. And, I, you know, it wasn't like, oh, my God, this is, this guy's dying. Like, I, you know, it was just like, well, oh, his hand's really cold. And I look at his face. It's like, oh, yeah, he's probably going to die. You know, it's, like, well, I'll it's put just him weird in the thoughts that just pass through. Yeah, yeah. And you you, like, you get very good at disassociating. You do. Sure. Yeah, yeah. You, you build e- that distance. Even when it's a friendly, like not yeah. like an American friendly, but like A and A, A and A. Like when that A and A guy got hit, I looked. I was like, oh, yeah, man, that sucks. Yeah. Well, yeah, that was another you know? thing. I was like, you know, it sounds really bad. It really does on its face. But I was during that clearing mission when the A and A guy hit. I was like, oh, thank God it wasn't our guy. Yeah. You Always. know, I didn't want anybody to suffer, but yeah, yeah. you know, it's just, you, you get, you take your wins when you can. Yeah. I mean, so. we were on a patrol where, uh, one of the ANAs got, uh, got shot through the stomach and he bled out like really fast. Seconds. Yeah. Seconds. Yeah. And that was like the reason I mentioned the whole like medic who's hit thing. Cause that was the day that it really sunk in on me because it was kind of a weird delay. Cause like you said, it might've been just a couple seconds, but it was gunfight shooting back whatever silence medic and we were all like who's hit who's hit a and a and you almost and everyone just like, goes oh oh yeah it was so <laughs> relief you know yeah. it's, it's so yeah. fucked up but it's 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 tragic but it also speaks to the complexities of the harsh reality of warfare well, also know. our disassociation with the A and A in general. And, yeah, and just you know, a lot of American units at other portions of the war were a lot more intertwined. Yeah, with the A and A. Yeah, you know, and they knew them by name, or they would interact with them, like the police mentor teams. You know, way back in Panjway. Yeah, we'd have two Americans embedded in an A and A Kandak. Like they knew everybody. 
Yeah. Or all the SF teams, you know. Yeah. That Earl assaulted Sparwingar. They were friends with the ANA. Like, if that yeah. had happened to them, they would have taken, like, because they knew them and they knew the, their stories. For us, yeah. the ANA that we served with, we knew nothing about them. We didn't know their yeah. names. We didn't know didn't, their background. Their religion. Yeah. You know, well, there's, I mean, they were getting knocked off at an amazing rate, too. So, they were. yeah. Yeah. And that's something I've come to um, just, I've matured into a deeper appreciation of is like the sacrifice those poor bastards had to make. Yeah. They, they didn't get a relief. I mean, I know they rotated out and stuff like that, but they didn't get a break. You know, they lived there. They lived there. Yeah. Yeah. Like they, they live there. Yeah. <laughs> Can you imagine like that in America? Like we got to yeah. deal with that in America? Yeah. Yeah, man. I mean, their, their sense of vacation was going home to, Northern Afghanistan, a different province in to Afghanistan, a different province where yeah. there's different, where there a different enemy. as many Alab- uh, Taliban. You know? It's just the yeah. local yeah. warlord right. this time instead of the right. Taliban. Yeah, I just I remember feeling so bad for the guys that worked on the cob. You know, they're just like they're cooking our mm-hmm. meals. You know, and helping us out with laundry and stuff like that. But like once we leave, these guys are just they're they're dead. toast. Yeah, they're, they're all dead. dead. Like Prindle told me uh, a couple months when we got back from. When we got back and they started closing down Sparrowgar, the cooks that we had, they were they were all dead. Because he kept in contact with him. He had them like on Facebook or something crazy like that. And basically they just they got gone. Yeah. But And if there's I don't I'm this the show isn't really about being overly critical of the government or anything like that, but our failure to protect people like yeah. that. Uh, especially interpreters, like the, inter- the interpreters, you know, are, the fact that thing. the fact that you can be an interpreter and you don't automatically get a visa is bullshit. Yeah, you had to do it for three fucking years. Bullshit. Yeah, they had. I think I think it was three years. I want to say it was three. Three years before they could apply. Yeah, before they could even apply for a visa, it, was, it wasn't even guaranteed. Yeah. And well, where I see it, if you're if you're an interpreter, you do you know however many whatever you the dura- duration is, you yeah. do a deployment. You go home with the unit that you deployed with. Yeah. Like, and you never go back outside the wire again. Yeah. Because, really like, there's be literally a freaking target on your face. Yeah. There and shouldn't be like, space. oh, well, thanks for your service. Go ahead and hang out in Kabul for a couple of years while we process your visa application. Fuck off. Oh, I was going to say, just like, we had the same problem in OF5 and OF7. Like, nothing. Yep. That never really sat right with me. Like, mm-hmm. we were really tight with Peshmerga guys. Like, oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Peshmerga was great. Yeah. And we yeah. had Terps back in OF5. You know, the, the guys were like, you know, they were Americanized. Like, yeah. they had, yeah. They were like, man, I hate Iraq. I hate Iraqis. You know, he's yeah. like, why? I want to <laughs> yeah. go to America. Oh, the, the, the hatred between the Kurds and the Arabs in Iraq was just like palatable. You know, it yes. was, oh, yeah, it was yeah. this, and all of our Terps in Mosul in seven were, uh, were Kurds, you know. Yeah. Yeah. Anyways, but was that the same for you guys in five? Yeah. Yeah. Same. Well, yeah. we had a couple of guys that were local nationals, but, um, I mean, they were, they, we had cool, there was one guy slick. He was, he, he, we trusted him so much. We gave him an AK. Yeah. We're just like, here, all the rest of them, they got like binoculars and a flashlight, you know, maybe a rape <laughs> yeah. whistle. You yeah. Know. <laughs> I mean, I, I remember sitting in the back of the truck with a guy named, uh, Kurt, his name was Robbie and he looked like a older version of, um, who was the dude that played Mario in the Super Mario Brothers film? Is uh, John Leguizamo? No, the other guy, Bob oh, No idea. Anyways, Small he looked like an older guy. version of him. He had this he had this amazing mustache. And he would like show me videos of his family gatherings on his phone and stuff like that. You know, it was a real connection, which we yeah. have with our Terps in Afghanistan, to be fair. Um, but that same connection we have with Peshmerga and stuff like that in Iraq, and it just was not there with A and A. Yeah. Hmm. Well, and I I know why they they the State Department goes through that process that they're like, Well, we're concerned about 
yeah. know, bringing in terrorists or Taliban insiders or whatever. And my opinion is, who cares? He could have stuck him in Guantanamo Bay and they would have been better off. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. If you think he's a terrorist, take him to a black site. I don't care. Don't mm-hmm. send him back to Kabul. I guarantee like, you they would be happy. They'd be like, hey, two years at a black site. I don't get to talk to family. Nothing. Oh, that's fine. That's I'd that's totally fine. do that. I get to go to America after though, right? Yeah. 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 America. Yeah. Okay. America, but like, nice. I mean, no what's, one. what's one guy going to do? You know, if, if he's a Taliban spy, then it, okay, now he's in America. The thing is Taliban like, doesn't care about America. Yeah. <laughs> They're not trying to bomb America. Oh, man. I don't know. I just, it's, like, it's, we're, it's, we're trying to get, we're kind of getting down a weird rabbit hole here. Maybe <laughs> it is a weird rabbit hole, but you know, I, I think it's, oh, it's been a for, it's been a policy weakness of the United States yeah. the entire time is that we've asked these people, specifically interpreters, yeah. to be faces of their people with us out on patrol and we completely abandoned them like i you know the cooks and all that stuff that's tragic too but they're they're at the base you know there's things that they can do to try to protect themselves um and i think we should there should be a visa program for them as well don't get me wrong but for the interpreters that are going out on patrol with us yeah and their faces being shown like like we didn't even give them awards like they're out there standing up for their own country, yeah. and we don't give yeah. them any awards when they do something. How how ridiculous is that? Like we, how, give, them, we give them a certificate of appreciation. Well, <laughs> thanks for the piece of paper, guy. I'm the white, <laughs> yeah. you know. Yeah, I'll tell you man. what, though, they appre- like those those pieces of paper that we give them. Those certificates that mean they actually mean a lot to them. Hmm. This isn't defending that, but you know, we've been contacted by a few people that have worked at Spoh and Gar and stuff. I have a certificate of appreciation. Yeah, and they send us a picture of their certificate of appreciation from the Canadians or from us, and it's like, I don't know, it's kind of cool. Do you guys ever have... I also think it's them just like, please help me out. Like, I'm legit. Look at at what I'm doing. That's usually why they're doing it. Did you guys ever have like a humanitarian aid moment where you're just like, "Uh, this is why I'm here. I'm glad we're doing it. Like, help somebody, a local national or something like that that stood out inside your mind? Sadly, no. I never, I never felt that we were helping the people at all. That was to totally the, like my other deployments. There was, there was, you know, moments like that. Galore. I remember a little. There was a little four-year-old girl that had boiling water poured all over her legs and stuff like that. Wouldn't be able to walk, and I'm, tra- I'm treating her. Mm-hmm. And then next week, one of my buddies is telling me he saw her on when he was on patrol playing soccer, and he like she's running around kicking the soccer ball. And I thought, my God, like that, that was me. I, I did that. Like, yeah, sure. If I wasn't there. Like that would never, she would never walk again. And I was like, mm. there's like, I felt good about being there, but I never had that moment with Afghanistan. I yeah. never had that. I mean, honestly, for me, dude, the only, like the only time I never had like a moment on deployment where I was like, we're doing the good work here. Like we're making these people's lives better. You know, um, the only thing I, the only thing I ever thought was like way long-term stuff is the, like the girls I always felt really, really bad for the girls because to be born into Panjway, Afghanistan as a female, it's not a good life. Like you're basically doomed to a life of indentured servitude. Actually, no, I take that back. You're in do- you're doomed to a life of slavery. And, uh, and they were like beautiful girls, man. You know, they, and they're such, I just, I, it was, it always broke my heart because, um, yeah, they're just the kids in general. Of, yeah, their life, they're they're destined to a life of slavery, and then when they're thirteen, fourteen, when they can start having kids, they're going to be married off to a dude who's forty five or fifty, and they're going to start cranking out babies. Yeah, you know they're well, going to have eight kids. What yeah. about in Zangabad where you had the chai boy? You yeah, remember him? Or, yeah, like oh, yeah, they're all over. Yeah, I, LP had one. That's Jeff. Mm-hmm. We Jeff point they had a chai boy. 
Who was that uh, that commander up there? The, um, I can't remember. Xanadine. Xanadine, right? There was yeah. a point where he was trying to bar- make a bargain with, was it McGrath or Kathy Kitching, mm-hmm. where he was trying to, because Sergeant Campbell was this big black guy, right? And he's like, he's like, I, he's like, I want him. I want him as a soldier. Just one, one night, one week. You know what I mean? He was like trying to bargain with him. He's like, I give you three men, three men. For him, you know what I mean? Just because he wanted yeah. to like stay the night with the result like that. <laughs> like, didn't, he, didn't he try to buy Kobos too? Yeah. He did. Yeah. He tried yeah. to get Kobos, yeah. <laughs> oh, it's not man. funny, but it's it yeah, it's not funny, but it's funny. I think that's one funny. thing that we should explicate a little bit about that culture is that, you know, so we talk about chai boys, which we haven't really gone into detail about before. I probably shouldn't, sorry. Because it's disgusting. But it is it, disgusting. But, but it's, I, it's, but a, it's like a fact. It, it needs to fact. be told. Yeah. yeah, it's a fact of life. Which is that in, I, w- I would even be hesitant to say Pashtun culture at large. Maybe it was just a thing that was regional to that area of Afghanistan. Yeah. Or to, to Panjway. I, I couldn't I couldn't. I'm not sure how it. widespread, but, but def- in Panjway, definitely in the South. It was yeah. definitely prevalent in the South. It, is, uh, it was common practice for older men to basically keep, for lack of a better word, young boys of ages 10 to 14, 15 for their own sexual practices. And uh, it was essentially a cycle of molestation and rape. And uh, it was an incredibly tragic part of being there because we had to work alongside these local police and things like that who would have these boys who were subjected to their predilections. And, uh, this is not a condemnation of homosexuality or anything like that. Like it, it was a, it was not any of that. It was a, it was re, non-consensual. It was not. It was a non-consensual redirectment of sexual power onto a non-consenting young man or child, and uh, mm-hmm. and it was born out of the weird belief that women are for procreation, and. Other than that, you do not have sexual encounters with them. So they directed that sexual energy towards children, and it's a it's a it's a tragedy of that area. It really is. Yeah, and it's like they they abide so hard to a religion that tells them you you may not you may not sleep with a woman if she's ever slept with another man. She cannot be a virgin. She has to be a virgin when you marry her. All this kind of stuff, and they 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 lock in on that, like this mm-hmm. this role of women in their culture, and they they don't waver, but there's somehow moral flexibility in how they they treat a young boy. They treat, yeah, because um, I I I know the Quran doesn't say it's cool to sleep with little boys. Yeah, it's it's not in there. It's it's, just it's a, not in there at all. It's a sex. It's a sectarian belief, essentially. Radical yeah. groups they they interpret. Religious yeah. texts, however they want, however yeah. they want to. Mm-hmm. So they take us. They take. I mean, we, you know, Christians do the same damn thing. They do, yeah, yeah, absolutely. You know, every the religion only, does. The it. only difference between the Taliban and guys from Eastern Kentucky is that they're a little bit richer in Eastern Kentucky. <laughs> <laughs> and and we're canceled. I'm not being provincial. I'm not being <laughs> yeah. provincial or, or degrading. I'm just yeah. being realistic. You know. Yeah. So if you yeah, had a choice because between... I'm, I'm from there and I can say. It. Yeah. <laughs> if you had a choice between moonshine whiskey and, and uh, black tar heroin, what would it be? Yeah. Ooh. <laughs> well, I've never tried black tar heroin, so I couldn't tell you. Nor I would think whiskey's I. a safe bet. 
Yeah, I think I whiskey's a whiskey. safe. Well, you know, yeah, I mean, moonshine whiskey's moonshine a safe whiskey's bet, but I don't think you're going to enjoy whiskey as much as you would enjoy heroin. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, anyways, oh man, sorry. We, we we've pulled the attention away from our guest. Apologies. Oh, yeah, please. Um, yeah. <laughs> um, Alex, the uh, the way we kind of always close these things out is we give you an opportunity to to talk about what whatever we haven't we haven't really covered any topic that's really important to you anything you want to say to somebody you know we you know it, and it doesn't have to be quick if you have you know a long story that you want to talk about or you want to talk about something specific this is kind of your your chance to dictate the direction of the conversation and close out the episode well uh, in that case um i think it's what's most forefront is uh that to Luxmore's wife, to his mother, to his children. If I could do anything to bring him back, I would. So, that's it. Man. Thanks, man. Yeah, we uh, we really appreciate you taking the time. We know uh, we know that, that that was a tough story for you to. Uh, to tell and we appreciate that you, you took the time to tell and i think it's going to mean a lot yeah to a lot of people sure. to to hear it so thank you absolutely man we really thanks for giving me the opportunity on. yeah no, it was an pleasure, opportunity man. it was a privilege yeah absolutely we, we appreciate you absolutely it was good talking with you guys either way yeah man <laughs> thanks for listening to this episode of the pandway podcast if you liked what you heard head on over to apple podcasts and leave us a five-star review New episodes every Monday on all major podcast platforms, Facebook, and YouTube. Visit www.thepanjwaypodcast.com for more information.